0: again and welcome to this continuing series uh, by the elephant and this morning we're, we're really pleased and honored to have uh, with us uh, Dr. Joy Mweni-Kiru of uh, the University of Nairobi School of Economics and uh, um, good morning Dr. Are.
1: Morning to you.
0: How are you doing?
1: Oh, thank you so much. Kenyans have been in lockdown since March but actually the people who are said to be working at home mainly at the public servant. Yes. I being a public servant, uh, my lockdown, I'm actually literally working from home. All my lectures are online or my supervision is online and to be honest uh, all my research applying for my whatever it's online and things like that so everything for me as a public servant, let me just make that distinction. As a public servant who lives on a paycheck, <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm working from home. Um, But I'm, I'm seeing many other Kenyans who don't have that luxury of a paycheck. They yes. cannot afford. In fact, you are seeing a lot of activity happening. But for public servants and for those in big organizations, uh, are literally... Working from home, so my family and I, my children, we are working from home. Okay. School is closed, so we are full. We are household. We are full okay. household.
2: Yeah. Yes. yes. Uh,
0: thank you, um, Dataria. I wanted to ask um, from from your perspective, from where you sit. Um, you know, we, we spent the first two, 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 two months um, of the COVID-19 pandemic just sort of understanding it and talking a lot about the epidemiology, how it's spreading, uh, what the symptoms are. And now we have moved to a, a conversation about uh, the economic impact uh, of the measures that we have implemented to mitigate uh, mm. uh, the COVID pandemic. And I was wondering mm. whether you could share your perspectives, uh, your perspective on on, on that, on, on uh, on what's what's taking place in our economy? What is going to happen? And and then I'll also ask you about uh, the the recent budget.
1: Um, First and foremost, look at corona being a health uh, health issue, a public health issue, but it becomes uh, an economic issue because of the measures which are put to deal with it from from the health perspective. And there's a negative relationship between the, the measures to mitigate the, the effects of corona and the spread of corona through social distancing. Social distancing will obviously work for health, but it will have a negative economic consequence. So because of the social distancing and all these uh, public health regulations, you find that uh, there's a lot of structural changes really, really happening. A lot of things are being affected by that. First and foremost, social, social distancing and uh, and the traveling cessation, that is international travel cessation, for example, has had a big impact on some sectors. For example, you talk about the tourism, the hospitality sector, generally hotels and tourism sector, that one is at a standstill. If you talk about education, like we know it, it is changing, uh, the consumption, the way goods are being produced and consumed is changing. And to expect some of these structural changes to actually continue even after this. I would like to say that before I, I talk too much that definitely Corona is uh, as we know it has brought about a lot of a lot of changes. It's actually a setback to the economy but definitely it's not, it's not a reset mm. even after even after even after Corona the world as we know it will not have drastically changed to be recognizable but there's going to be glaring changes that we did not know before. The things we are learning now, the things we are doing now, some of them are going to stay even after Corona. Um,
0: you, you you mentioned the impact on on um, on the hospitality industry, and that has been quite quite marked. And and you know we've been reading reports of, of and you know Kenya is heavily dependent uh, on on tourism. For uh, its, you know, a large chunk of its foreign exchange earnings, as we are also very dependent on on, on remittances. Um, uh, there's a, you know, the sort of analysis that one hears is that um, the the tourism sector, the entire hospitality sector, is going to take quite some time um, to to return to. Um, to its, its its former levels. And there are those who argue that actually it will not return simply because, you know, as long as Corona is around, people are afraid to travel. Uh, we have uh, this, this physical distancing underway. Uh, uh, the, the mechanics of, of the hospitality sector. I, 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 I visited a, a, a couple of restaurants in Nairobi and one of the striking things is um, uh, you know, you're only allowed to sit two at a table. There's the, the distances between the, the tables are also um, large, and so there's still a bit of nervousness about um, getting out into public. So, uh, are we seeing you know, so changes uh, to our economy that may may last quite a bit of time?
1: Now, let us uh, let us uh, talk about uh, some some hard facts. For example, Corona is going to be here with us probably for the rest of the for the rest of the time yeah. but the, the epidemiology of the disease changes two things will either happen either we acquire the so-called communal immunity or we find a vaccine and that means that then corona stops it's here with us but, but then it's, it becomes like any other disease that you are living with today that we have known how to manage and handle it why corona is a bit scaring is because without the vaccine and without no non no non, non, non ex, exact treatment then it becomes a big threat to a lot of people but those are transient those are those those characteristics are transient we expect them to be once we find a, we we get communal immunity and once or we find a vaccine the fear of social distancing will end the fear of contracting corona will no longer will no longer be an issue just like we're not scared of getting a flu and you know that it is there all the time so the same attitude will prevail but before then this is what we are seeing so now about now the tourism sector and whether it will recover and whether things will be the same again some of the very low chain uh, tourism sector may go off and not be able to come back Mm -hmm. because corona hit when nobody expected it Mm -hmm. it hit at the peak of the tourism sector in kenya Many of these small enterprises dealing with tourism had actually pumped their businesses. They had bought new, expensive vehicles, probably on loan. They had put up some, some structures to accommodate their their customers and clients. Now, those are rotting as we speak. Yes. And much as the loan will be rescheduled and done what and forgiven and not be blacklisted because of the, because of the regulations, eventually they'll have to come face to face with that loan. I've not had any bank writing off loans yet. No. I've not had that, but I've had all all these kind of negotiations and things like that. So those small struggling ones, perhaps they may just be collateral damage. but the bigger ones Hmm. the bigger ones uh, the government will not let uh, some some essential tourism facilities Hmm. go to waste hospitality infrastructure like the airlines and things like that the policymakers will interject on the growth-oriented big tourism sector firms because they cannot let them just go under but the operations may change now and coming but again the tourism sector will take long for too long to recover for two reasons one people's incomes have been battered now before by the time we start planning a holiday it means that you will have recovered from all the economic battering you have been, you have suffered maybe you had lost your jobs you had experienced a pay cut or probably you you are all focus changed maybe you, you've seen a lot of luxurious vehicles now selling Selling vegetables and selling groceries from the from the boot or from the trunk.
0: That's correct. It,
1: it's because it's because people like every time I walk in town, uh, the few times I've walked in town, I've seen pickups parking those semprados which will be selling vegetables in the evening after them being loaded with files and compu- and laptops and printers from from luxurious office blocks in town. It means that somebody has just closed a consultancy office, somebody has just closed a private business and so what do I do with this vehicle? this I can at least try and survive people are not make people are not selling vegetables from their trunks because they are making money rather they are trying to survive it's it's like it's, it's a survival tactic you need to eat at the end of the day so really every time i see this luxurious vehicle selling vehicle my heart bleeds another office is somebody's job so and those are the people who are planning for these holidays don't forget mm-hmm. by the time they reorganize themselves and start planning now and, and setting back the offices that it takes long to set up an office in town by the time they recover that and start planning a holiday that is why now the tourism sector will take longer to recover it is going to take longer but surely to start recovering slowly by slowly we don't expect massive profits from them in the beginning but slowly by slowly we will see them recovering but it may take longer you
0: you, you mentioned dr Are, um, um, you know that you know you haven't heard of any banks writing off loans and i think the same same seems to hold for for the entire country um we you know our debt to gdp ratio has been uh, going up steadily uh, for, for, for a number of years now, um, but we have just taken on a huge amount of new debt. Um, fortunately, some of it is uh, is, is more concessional. Um, but um, uh, you know, we've, the government is in the middle of it, is implementing a, a, you know a, an injection of of, of uh, a huge amount of money into the economy. I'll be keen for, for your opinion in that regard, uh, in the context of the budget that was read by, by, uh, by the minister recently and, and how you think that is going to play out um, given this uh, con- context of, of COVID-19 that we're living in.
1: Mm. <clears throat> Let us first acknowledge that uh, the relationship between debt and GDP is not linear in either way. Rather, it is contractic that is it will rise that is at low levels of debt there is uh, there is positive economic growth until there is a tipping point for debt whereby more debt now will start affecting the economy negatively. The tricky bit now, and where many economies don't get it right, is where is our tipping point because tipping point and determined by many other things. Uh, market imperfections in the economy. Mm. An economy like Kenya, with very high market imperfections, our tipping point is likely to be much lower mm. than an economy like the US, which is uh, which is much more frictionless mm. compared to ours. Mm. Their tipping point is going to be much higher. Yeah. So the question is, where is Kenya's debt tipping point? And I think that is where the d- discussions really need to be, because debt on itself it's 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 not the issue. The issue is. Are we taking more than we can chew? And when do we tell the tipping point? Estimated, I told us, at 50% of GDP or 62% of GDP. And uh, for a long time, it was thought like debt levels up to 60, between 50 and 65 max percent of GDP for Kenya. Even though 65 is a little bit on the upper side, but that could be possibly accommodated. Anything more than that, according to the estimates on the tipping point, anything more than that for Kenya in particular could have a negative repercussion. That is what we know from the economics. But now we are seeing a lot of debt coming in. Question If, for me as an economist, my question is what is it that we can show for this debt? And when we are spending about 40% of our GDP in 12 months, can the economy genuinely accommodate that level of spending? In layman's language, if you go to a villager and you give a villager today 100 million Kenya shillings to spend in three months, what constructive activity do you expect that villager to do in the first place? They don't have the technology, the know-how, the, the entrepreneurial capacities. They cannot just accommodate that that uh, that kind of financing. No wonder we are looked at left, right, and center. Because every time we try to budget, because all this debt is acquired in the name of financing a budget. Yes. These budgets tend to be overinflated not just for the good of the economy but for the good of some individuals who have learned that the best way to get your to get your money is simply to to overestimate uh put a padding for yourself Mm -hmm. and that way you won't be caught Mm -hmm. you would and because no we are spending within the budget we are following our budget guidelines and blah 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 it's going to be harder to be caught so for me the question is all this, all these trillions, when you're budgeting 40% of our GDP to spend in 12 months, is it necessary? Mm-hmm. And that can only come in if you have serious discussions about our policymakers, about the budget preparations, and, and a bit of honesty. Mm-hmm. A bit of honesty. I've always argued that uh, what is lacking in many of these African economies is digitization. Mm-hmm. Today we, have, uh, today we have technology that, that can allow us to know, for example, how much money is spent where and, uh, and how much this has been procured for and that data should be accessible to everybody. All these secrecies about finances, for example, all these uh, pretense that we do not have enough technology for enough digitization, it's, it's nonsense. Where would you give social protection, for example, and we, we cannot quite be able to, to tell in, uh, we don't have a system that's, that can be audited even by the public to know who got what from where and how much was budgeted and who got what from there and their complete identification in a way that should any or focus organization or should any citizen of Kenya want to know we sacrifice this much to protect our brothers and sisters who are vulnerable. How many of them caught? And that data should just plug out and be shown to everybody. And the math should just figure And if you want, just like after we do research and we submit our budgets, yeah. it is possible for the donor to call and confirm, did you receive this yeah. or did they interview you? There's that kind of honesty and it's very easy. Why is that lacking? Is it deliberate? And, that, and as long as that attitude is there, then this debt will always be a concern. Because at the end of the day, you find that if we acquire, you see the point is, if you go back to the petrodollars in the 1970s, that is when when the oil producing countries produced a lot of oil. Yes. and And they had so much money and they wondered what do we do with this money? And so they looked around and the African governments were there and they're ready. They're like, yeah, give us. And so for them, 10 years looked like it's a long time. We will find a way so they take all this money without quite exactly thinking what they're going to do with it but money is always good they take it and 10 years come that was in the 80s 90s 10 years come and they have nothing to show with all the debt that data they took from the petrol dollars from the oil producing countries and they told pay up pay up pay up and these guys can't pay up they have nothing to show for it the economies are as good as nothing then now we got caught up in the structural adjustment programs where when these guys tried to push for their money to be paid. And they went through the Breton Wood institutions and somehow convinced them, these guys are disorganizing the economy. That's why they got so much money and they can't show anything for it. And so the Breton Wood institutions take it upon themselves to help us organize our economies through the structural adjustment programs, but mainly to make us pay up. Yeah. And when push came to shove, we stood up and said, can't pay, won't pay, HIPPIC. Yeah. Highly Indebted Countries Initiative came in. Yeah. And we were correlated. Yeah. To some extent, as for these concessional loans, and after that, now a couple of years down the line, we are the same thing is it's happening now with the, with these Chinese loans. The Chinese have got surpluses, you know that. Yes, and uh, and not and the Chinese are acting out of their surpluses, and of course, every, you know, in Africa, everywhere you scratch there's something. Either you'll find a diamond here, or you'll find some tea there, you'll do something in Africa. And that has been the envy of the world. And, everybody's, and everybody, the whole world is, itchy, is itching to get a piece of Africa. And so what better way, and they have known our weak point, money, you know. They know they know what it can't resist, unfortunately so. Unfortunately. So there are all this willingness to to give us debts and you've taken them. So the point is, these debts at the end of the day, are we still giving out Africa for free like we did it during the colonial period? Only that this time we're doing it deliberately with our own sweat and blood.
2: Yes.
1: Are we setting up ourselves for an Africa that can never be free? Because at the end of the day, whoever, give, whoever has the money takes the control. Mm. You know, at the end of the day, that's a question you want to ask, for how long can we just ask ourselves how much debt? If we think about our freedom, then debt should be a freedom issue. If we want a free Africa, we cannot take away the discussion of debt from freedom and ask ourselves genuinely. If we are serious about developing our economies, if we are serious about serving our people, how much money can we accommodate? Like I, the analogy of the poor man and the hundred million. If you want to build the poor man, he doesn't need that at a goal. He needs to start smaller amount, acquiring the right tech, the, the, the right training, the right know-how, the, the right, um, the right equipment it needs to start with that and slowly by slowly you can build this debt capacity until you can be able or rather it's financial absorption capacity let me talk about that mm. we can build our financial absorption capacities in such a way that every time we acquire debt it is is debt that is going to be meaningful to our economies mm. not debt that we take and we steal it you know it, it sounds ridiculous yeah. we steal from ourselves yes. <laughs> But and, it sounds and, ridiculous.
0: And 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 with debt, ironically, um, we're not only stealing from ourselves, but we're stealing from future generations. Because yes. you know, uh, this is money that's going to have to, you know, it's 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 our our children who are going to have to pay it. But uh, what is even more uh, striking um, right now is that uh, we borrowed quite expensively. And you're very right. Um, you know, between 1996 and 2006, there was this highly indebted. Poor countries initiative, which was quite successful. A lot of debt was put mm-hmm. off, uh, and now Kenya is considered a middle-middle-income middle country. So we are not, um, uh, you know, uh, eligible for some of uh, the the concessions that the poorer countries are. Um, and yet, the, the government has um, um, embarked on a fairly significant um, stimulus package uh, to cushion the economy from. Mm. Uh, from the effects of the COVID 19 uh pandemic uh, you know half a billion dollars uh and you know every day the newspapers have news of yet another loan that has been acquired from african Development bank world bank european union etc and um uh, what's you know in, it, given given the context that you've given uh which which is something that we know that <laughs> uh, we're not very transparent with this money uh, mm. we're also fond of stealing it uh, mm. um, what, what needs to change if this is if, if, if we're going to turn um, this coronavirus moment into an opportunity for us to be able to manage our affairs economically in a much more transparent, honest, and manner that is productive to the majority of Kenyan people.
1: Actually, what is worrying about, it's okay to have a rescue package, a stimulus package, and, but my economy's mind is telling me, that's just one piece of the story. Where's the rest of the story? Because we know that in economics, that if you only deal with the supply, the demand, mm. if, you, if you only allow people to continue consuming goods and services, and, uh, and, and you do not stimulate the production side, we know that we are gearing up for some macro instabilities like inflation. Mm. So as it were, we can as well brace up for post-COVID serious, uh, serious inflation unless things change. And how do, how do we expect this to change? Because we want to ask ourselves, what is our biggest supply bottleneck? We're talking about the raw materials, the technology, we are talking about raw materials, technology, and, um, and capital equipment. What what are we doing to address those? What are we doing to ensure that uh there is still technology transfer? Because that is where the COVID-19 opportunities will come in for those who care to open our eyes. And Africa is in a good place to together. Because compared to other economies, then compared to other economies, African economies have been less battered and the Western economies. We expect capital flow from the West to Africa, but only to the countries whose economies have got proper supply infrastructure which will attract more foreign direct investments. What policies are we putting up to attract capital investments to attract to attract technology transfers during COVID-19? Because that's what the opportunity is. And to make sure that now we build the supply of goods and services to complement these other demand dynamics that you're building to the system. So as long as you're not talking about supply capacities and you're not talking about how to attract the foreign direct investments and the policies to ensure that FDI really leaves us better than we were. We know that FDI is just a necessary but it's not sufficient condition. Is necessary because you need to grow the pie before you talk about redistribution. So, FDI will only help us grow the pie, which is important. But is that pie going to be feeding us as Kenyans, or is it going, is it going to be feeding them? Now, that is where we fail. So, even as you talk about FDI, you think that that's a necessary condition for growth, but it's not sufficient because, like we always say. In development economies are not very much thrilled about the numbers. It's about what those numbers mean in terms of uh, people's welfare, education, health, and overall well-being. So as, what policies are we done that, even as we talk about attracting FDI? So for me, that is where the opportunity for COVID-19 will happen. But if is it, is it were now, we're going to brains for post-COVID inflation. Mm-hmm. Just like because every quantitative easing moment in history unless it has been matched by proper supply dynamics, it has always ended up in very, very bad inflation.
0: Yeah. It, um, l- let, me, let me change tact uh, a little bit and, and ask you about, um, you know, you, you teach at the Nairobi University and, and we've been seeing some distress um, expressed um, um, in many of our institutions of, of higher learning. We've seen advertisements of, of salaries being slashed um uh, and, and and other changes taking place because obviously this contraction of demand has affected uh, everybody so I wanted to ask how, how it's affecting uh, uh, you say at the economic department of the University of Nairobi and and, and how this uh, might be um, uh, mitigated but but uh, more broadly um, what does it tell us you know one of the things that has been striking about our institutions of, of higher learning has been a very dramatic expansion um, of parallel programs. uh, And I want to see more, it's been a unique phenomenon in Kenya of of our universities going into the real estate business in a very major way. You know, uh, I once visited the campus, the law campus of one university, uh, which is behind the law campus of another one. And so Mm -hmm. I asked myself, okay, uh, our universities have... uh, have have gone on a spending spree um they are, they are they are very big in real estate and so what kind of condition are you in now with this large major major contraction of demand uh how, how, are, you, how are you coping and, and what 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 lessons are we learning um
1: mr githonko your cv about the university is a bit old yes universities parallel degrees were cash cows okay but you know what happened in, when Matiangi became the education sec the education CS cabinet secretary during Matiangi era he put stringent measures in terms of the examination management and that means that all these many grades A's and B's the students were scoring and fighting for university slots the idea of, of parallel programs was to get all this money within the country don't go to India go, don't go where just come here and so of course Fueled with what you call diploma disease, a discussion for another day, whereby everybody thinks that uh, getting a degree is your ticket to a good life, but that's another discussion. Fueled with that phenomena, what you call a diploma disease phenomena, and and uh, people started cheating in exams, and there all these people getting university entry grades, and they could not be accommodated in the in the institution. So. We, we took the opportunity to have all these parallel degrees and parallel programs, and indeed money was coming in and universities did many, many things, including University of Nairobi built a tower without okay. any debt. The University of Nairobi tower, no debt. Okay. That is no debt, no debt. That is parallel money. But that was then. When Matiangi came and he put regulation about the exams, there were not enough students even to fill up the slots for the public universities, leave alone the private. Uh, no, they were not enough. They were not enough students. So mu- who will pay for an education if you can get it for free and with a loan, if you can get it with a, a subsidized rate from the government yes. and join the University of Nairobi, which is still the leading university? Yes. You get it? Yes. At so, so all those parallel programs, even up to today, we, not, we are no longer able to run as lucrative programs at those because of the un- examination management at high school which yes. has meant that now we are no longer seeing so many people acquiring the university entry grades. Remember, it's it's it's, it's, it's not okay, it's not allowed by law to admit somebody for a degree program if they, don't, if they do not attain the university entry grade. So that has meant that all this module two have gone. Yes. But, but still talking about now the COVID-19 and universities, you know, we were caught flat-footed. Yes. We will call us. Despite all this, you can always ask, what did the module money mean to lecturers themselves? As me, as a lecturer, I the module 2 money did not get me a, a, a laptop to use in the office. As just as a normal classroom lecturer, it didn't get me a. It did not get me a laptop. It did not get me classroom technology that really matters for me. It did not get me. It, I mean, it it didn't mean much in terms of the teaching itself. It could have meant something else in terms of university infrastructure and all that. But in terms of the actual delivery of the job and the lecturers and the students, it did not quite build on that. So we were caught flat-footed, whereby the first time a lecturer, so 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 we teach online. What are you going to use? Who has laptop? Who has what? Yes. So, and That discussion is somehow people have learned that you just if you don't teach it's your is your course that is whatever. So people have had to implement on that. What about our students? We have students from all over Kenya. In the farthest corner of this country, talk about Lamu, Trukana, and everywhere, the remotest areas we take them. Even areas with without uh, in, uh, network coverage, those are our students. As a lecturer, I have learned that teaching is my job and I cannot sit back and teach. So I have tried, the university gave us uh, data from telecom network about 10 gb of data everybody in a card it's supposed to be renewable and that's that's what you've received of course I've got to come up with ways to make that data work for me get a laptop and all that kind of a thing but then even even, even when we have the online classes not everybody is able to log in because like if you talk about the school of economics economics is one of the pre prim- Courses in the faculty in the College of Humanities, for example, and we have class sizes of up to 500 students 300. Yeah, the smallest class at the School of Economics would be 340. We the moment you combine it with the private students who we have integrated, since they are not enough to form or whatever, we have tried to, to integrate them with the normal regular students. The moment you combine them with, uh, with our regular students, then the, we get numbers of about 400 500. If you have an online class on a good day, out of the out of those, I'm going to have at least 80, not more than 100, but even that 100, some will be coming in and dropping out and uh, like that. So on average, this will start for me from the beginning to the end, it's going to be about 80 students. You, you start a discussion with the class representative on what is happening to your colleagues, and some, they don't, they are not reachable, they are out of network and things like that. So the, the digital divide, those the students who are highly marginalized. Because even if you give them the data, whatever, and, and telecom does not cover the whole country, what does that really mean to them? Yes, yes. Even a student from a poor, a poor family, a laptop may be a big luxury. So there are all these kind of because our universe because our students are not. The, if you talk about the situation to USIU, for example, the experience is different because them they take children of another different background of of high levels of of, of livelihoods. All these gadgets are normal and they live within non- network coverages. Right. But for us, we take students from all over. So so and they are and they are completely different. So the digital divide. And what I learned is that. Uh, I remember one time I, I had a talk with one of our student leaders on phone, and she told me, "Malimu, you are being ridiculous. Mm. Why don't you ask me to just stay alive and come back to school after COVID? <laughs> where are you? Where are you? Where are you, <laughs> That's what she asked me. She asked me, "Why don't you just ask me to stay alive and come back? Because even staying alive is a challenge. She told me that even staying alive is not is not obvious." Yeah. for some of us yeah. so our point was depending on what level you are of the digital divide it's not about being told this is a this is free free internet go and use it there are much more pressing issues to you like how do you earn a livelihood how do you find the handhill that has got the better network because she told me like where some of our students live you've got to climb on a hunt hill or you have to go to climb on a tree to find just to make a call yes Live alone to find a place where you can sit down and connect all these sophisticated, luxurious gadgets and listen to Dr. Joy from our living room giving a lecture. That is pure luxury. Malimu, let me just stay alive. So there are all these kind of uh, experiences that you've had, mainly because our students are from all over Kenya. So what are we talking about? As a country, the point is, unfortunately, online learning is one of the things that is going to stick. Travel is going to be, this. people have realized that, like, for example, those whose jobs are travel intensive, they are people who simply have got suitcases packed all the time because they just change any time you are traveling and things like that. They've just realized that they don't have to do that all the time. They can have those meetings from the comfort of their homes. Yes. They can have these online meetings and they work and realize that they actually work. No, I would have come to your office to do this before COVID. Yes. But here we are and you're doing it very well. So these are some of the things which are going to stay. Same as online learning. People have learned, that actually if you can learn online, if New York is offering degrees to American or if Alpha is offering degrees to is still teaching online and those degrees are still as good, then why don't I register and learn here? So even our universities, unfortunately online learning is going to remain and those who are not embraced even after post COVID, they're going to lose out. So, we are calling for government and the policymakers and anyone to enable that. No, internet is no longer a luxury. Okay. It is a basic, it is one of the basic survival tools for any economy now. And post COVID, the digital, those who have got more digital access will continue advancing faster than those without. Yes. So, but unfortunately, you cannot start bringing people internet and they don't have food. They'll vandalize the wires, even if to connect some juakali stuff. So, poverty reduction in remote areas and job creation in remote areas so that they can appreciate this infrastructure. Why do people vandalize uh, road, 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 whatever, road equipment like this, uh, like this, uh, metals or like, like this, steel, that, whatever? It's because they don't appreciate it. They're looking at it, we slept hungry and they start metal lying there, let's just remove it. So you have to bring people's livelihoods higher so that you can be able to bring them internet if you want to make sense for them. And so the job in Africa is not yet done. And especially in Kenya, in the remote areas, it's, it's not yet done and you need to get there as soon as possible.
0: Uh, thank you uh, very much, uh, Dr. I know we're running out of time. One, one, one final question, uh, which is again to yeah. do with, with, uh, with the academy and, and uh for experts and academics intellectuals like yourself who are still continuing with your job your uh um, you, your teaching um how 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 are the you know how are you managing the constraints within your own context okay um you have you have uh, uh you know you, you've you've been very articulate in describing this digital um, um divide and so uh, you know uh, you say only focusing, saying you know you, you you've lost uh you know sometimes up to two-thirds of your students who uh the ones who are from outside nairobi who don't have access to to the internet and i like you're saying saying that you know they have you know, they have to look for the, the the highest anthill to be able to log into to uh to listen to uh, dr Kiru's uh, lecture but um for you now um under under lockdown um you're an academic you need to do research you need access not only to you know your books and other uh, uh, material that is essential for what you do but you also need interaction with your colleagues uh, who who are part of you know of teams but uh, um, you know you're now working from home how has 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 that disruption also uh, impacted uh, you now just as a researcher and and as an intellectual uh, in the field of economics here in kenya
1: Uh, The truth is uh, first and foremost our careers work for us as, as people so we've gone out of our way to use our own personal resources to make it comfortable for us to work from our homes. If I don't do research and if I don't keep my research network going first I will not earn a promotion and my university does not have all the money to fund all my research. So it's my career that's going to ca- to suffer at the end of the day. Yes. Realizing that many of us have just come up and come up with our own personal resources to enable ourselves. Like we, You just repump your own office with using your own resources. Don't wait for the university to buy you a laptop, a computer, a printer uh, or provide all your, your internet needs. No, 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 no. You cannot afford to do that because you're going to suffer first and foremost as a person. So most of us have just done that. But the university is supporting us in a way that... Uh, I don't have to go to the deputy vice chancellor of research to tell him, oh, give me this, I want to apply for this. We can be able to do all these things online. We can access our university library online. And uh, yes, uh, the the university has released some of the things that will keep continuing, the bureaucracies have actually reduced with COVID. You see, before when papers used to move from one office and somebody takes a whole day, two days to sign a paper, that's gone. And I think post-COVID, nobody's going to go back to that. Well done. that you've learned that you can get things done online. So that, uh, that's one of the things that has really happened, that all these things can actually be moved online with a lot of speed, can even be able to track and things like that. So those are some of the things that the university has been able to embrace well. What has not worked very well for the university, and this, which is not really a, a fault of the university, is a fault of the country structure, is reaching our students. It's not our fault that your students in Trukana, in very remote areas with no network coverages, even for making a call. It's not our fault as a university, but that's where we find ourselves. We'd like to teach our students online, which now our lecturers have realized you better do this, otherwise, you're going to lose your job. <laughs> Yeah. So, people are put on their own resources to yeah. teach that. They were saying, look, we are paying you, we even paying your transport allow- your transport allowances, and you still say that you cannot afford a smartphone to deliver a lecture? You must be kidding me, you are not worth being yeah? here. Yeah. So, everybody has told the line.
2: Yeah.
1: In terms of us, you have told the line, but what about our students? Yeah. And that's we not really afford. And even if we continue teaching, we still believe that some of the things we've taught online they must be retaught again mm. post-COVID because not, if you are teaching less than two-thirds of your students, depending on what department you are in and depending on where your students are, I think it's just unfair to assume that I taught this online.
2: Yes,
1: It's, it's just unfair to assume that. Of course, we, we courses like engineering, medicine, I don't know how much of the practical stuff can be done online again. Yes. So there are all this kind of, when it comes, yeah, we are teaching, but I don't think it's, it's comprehensive for all our students, given the nature and the diversity of them. But the university, as a university is doing the best they can. Believe in me, everything has moved online.